and welcome to episode 28 of Paper View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in a true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with the first story today, which is about Zionism and claims of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. This is in The Guardian. McDonnell backed launch of anti-Zionist group accused of anti-Semitism. This is the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell. John McDonnell, a decade ago, praised the filing of a controversial anti-Zionist network which has been accused of anti-Semitism, saying it had given a voice to Jews who condemned Israel's ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. Can't have that, can we? The Shadow Chancellor was lead signatory of a Commons Early Day motion written in 2008, also signed by Tory MP Peter Bottomley that welcomed the launch of the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network and its founding charter. He said on Wednesday, this was published on the 1st of August, he said on Wednesday that he did not endorse all of the views of the group which supports the liberation of Palestinian people and land and challenges what it claimed were Israeli attempts to spread false accusations of anti-Semitism. IJAN is regarded as a radical Jewish fringe group which is thought to have several hundred members in the UK and a couple of thousand internationally. One of its most prominent members was the late Holocaust survivor Hadjim Meyer who gave a speech at an event attended by Jeremy Corbyn in which he repeatedly compared Israeli activities in Gaza to the mass killing of Jews by the Nazis. Accurate description. Gaza is little more than a concentration camp. The article goes on. The Labour leader apologised on Wednesday for the concerns and anxiety caused after hosting the event on Holocaust Memorial Day in 2010 while he was a backbench MP, acknowledging he had appeared with people whose views I completely reject. Corbyn also came under fire after it emerged he had likened Israel's treatment of Gaza to Nazi sieges of the Second World War. Well, in Second World War, you had a psychopath in Adolf Hitler wanting to destroy a whole group of people just because of who they were. It was genocide against Jewish people. Well, we have a psychopath in Benjamin Netanyahu, whose father was Jair Jabotinsky's personal assistant. Jair Jabotinsky was the founder of revisionist Zionism. And Netanyahu is committing genocide against Palestinians in apartheid Israel, which seeks to destroy more and more Palestinian land in search of a greater Israel, which was Jair Jabotinsky's vision. This is one of the reasons why the West is targeting Syria, because the idea is to balkanize Syria. That's also Israel's goal, because Israel dictates foreign policy of the West, because they're all working to the same agenda in the end. Anyway, the article goes on. The Labour leader apologised on Wednesday for the concerns and anxiety caused after hosting the event on Holocaust Memorial Day in 2010 while he was a backbench MP, acknowledging he had appeared with people whose views I completely reject. Corbyn also came under fire after it emerged he had likened Israel's treatment of Gaza to Nazi sieges of the Second World War. He told a rally outside Parliament in 2010, I was in Gaza three months ago. I saw the psychological damage to a whole generation who'd been imprisoned a Labour spokesman said Jeremy was not comparing the actions of Nazis and Israelis, but the conditions of civilian populations in besieged cities in wartime. This is the other thing as well. When you say that there is a comparison between the actions of the Nazis and the Israeli regime, there's a difference between saying it's the Israelis, as in it's the Israeli people when it's not, and saying the Israeli regime, which is what's behind genocide of Palestinians. A dictionary definition of genocide is the systematic and widespread extermination or attempted extermination of a national, racial, religious or ethnic group. I wonder if that sums up what's happening in Palestine. 
The article goes on. McDonald insisted he did not endorse all of Ajan's views after he admitted that the Labour Party had been shaken to the core by criticism of how it handled the anti-Semitism allegations which have engulfed the party. At the centre of these claims of anti-Semitism against the Labour Party is the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, a Zionist group which goes round defaming people who are who are making legitimate comment and asking legitimate questions of Israel and its genocide of the Palestinians and pointing out revisionist Zionism's role in global society and foreign policy. It targets them and defames them. That organisation is at the centre of the claims of anti-Semitism against the Labour Party. The article goes on. He has been at the forefront of attempts by the Labour leadership to defuse the crisis and on Wednesday vowed the party would resolve it before its conference next month. None of us fail to appreciate the way this has upset people, including ourselves. It's shaken us to the core, really, but we'll resolve it. We've got to, he said. Well, if what you're saying is true, what does it matter if it upsets people? The article goes on. But the Shadow Chancellor faced questions after it emerged that Ijan's charter suggested the Holocaust was being used by Israel to give it license to perpetrate other atrocities against Palestinians and claimed there was a history of Zionist collusion with repressive and violent regimes, including Nazi Germany. Absolutely, there is history of Zionist collusion with repressive and violent regimes, including Nazi Germany. That's a fact. The wording in McDonald's motion specifically welcomed the charter which critics said breached the International Holocaust Remembrance and Alliance definition of anti-Semitism twice, while also suggesting the Nazi Holocaust was unexceptional. A Labour Party spokesperson said John was welcoming the creation of an organisation that represented an important strand of radical Jewish political campaign. Of course he didn't and doesn't endorse all of the language and views expressed in the charter. On Wednesday, Momentum, which is a British political organisation, founded a month after Jeremy Corbyn's successful campaign for the Labour Party leadership. Momentum dropped Peter Willsman from its slate for the elections to Labour's ruling body after he suggested Jewish Trump fanatics were behind accusations of anti-Semitism in the party's ranks. The National Coordinating Group of the Pro-Corbyn Pressure Group said the activist remarks were deeply insensitive and inappropriate and had angered many in the Jewish community. Our movement is more than half a million strong. We must hold those who represent us to an even higher standard than ordinary Labour Party members, the spokesman said. Momentum had been under growing pressure to remove Willsman from its JC9 slate for re-election after he was recorded at a National Executive Committee meeting earlier this month in which he said some were making up duff information about anti-Semitism within the party. His decision now puts the Labour leadership under pressure to reconsider disciplinary action against the party activist or even suspend him from the NEC. Angela Smith, Labour's shadow leader in the Lords, has become the most senior party figure so far to call on Willsman to consider his position on the NEC. Jewish groups criticised the IJAN's founding charter, a spokesman for the Community Security Trust, a charity that protects British Jews from anti-Semitism and related threats said it is extraordinary but deeply meaningful that senior Labour figures back such a tiny extremist group of anti-Zionist Jews. This fringe of a fringe uses the word Zionism in terms of conspiratorial global power and unable to actually deny the Holocaust instead tries desperately to use it to somehow attack Zionism and Israel. This is exactly the kind of thing that explains why Labour is in its current anti-Semitism fiasco. What, you mean that the idea that certain Zionists are in positions of power globally and are using that power to do things they shouldn't be doing. Well, that is the case. It's called revisionist Zionism. The article goes on. Ira Kaplan, the chair of the Jewish Labour Movement, said anti-Semitism is something which we need to drive out of the Labour Party at all levels. Well, genuine anti-Semitism, I agree with 
drowning that out of any political party, but genuine comment and questioning of Israel and revisionist Zionism. We need more of that. The quote goes on. That means endorsing the IHRA definition and all its examples and informing Peter Wilsman that he should leave the NEC. Both of these are in the gift of the Labour Party. They can do this now when I call on them to do so. If they do that, then we will then start to be in a position to say to the British public that anti-Semitism, contemporary or in the past, is starting to be dealt with properly by the Labour Party. The Guardian has approached the IJAN for comment. Well, the Rothschilds, who are ultimately behind revisionist Zionism, don't give a crap about Jewish people, just like they don't give a crap about humanity in general. But revisionist Zionism is not about Jewish people. It's about using the cover that it is about Jewish people to stop legitimate questioning and criticism by labelling people racist if they make legitimate comment or ask legitimate questions of Israel and revisionist Zionism. This is the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which the Labour Party has, at least thus far, refused to adopt. And as I go through it, you'll see why. In the spirit of the Stockholm Declaration that states, with humanity still scarred by anti-Semitism and xenophobia, the international community shares a solemn responsibility to fight those evils. Genuine anti-Semitism and xenophobia, I agree with. It goes on. The Committee on Anti-Semitism and Holocaust Denial called the IHRA plenary in Budapest 2015 to adopt the following working definition of anti-Semitism. On 26th of May 2016, the plenary in Bucharest decided to adopt the following non-legally binding working definition of anti-Semitism. Non-legally binding at the moment. This is the definition. Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish and non-Jewish individuals and or their property, toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Hatred towards Jews is ludicrous. It goes on. To guide IHRA in its work, the following examples may serve as illustrations. Manifestations might include the targeting of the state of Israel, conceived as a Jewish collectivity. However, criticism of Israel, similar to that levelled against any other country, cannot be regarded as anti-Semitic. Yet, although unofficially that's the idea, it goes on. Anti-Semitism frequently charges Jews with conspiring to harm humanity. Revisionist Zionists want to harm humanity. And it is often used to blame Jews for why things go wrong. It is expressed in speech, writing, visual forms and action. Well, a singer-songwriter, Alison Shablon, had was accused of being anti-Semitic because of what she said in music she recorded. So, even music now. It is expressed in speech, writing, visual forms and action and employs sinister stereotypes and negative character traits. Contemporary examples of anti-Semitism in public life, the media, schools, the workplace and in the religious sphere could taken into account the overall context, include but are not limited to calling for, aiding or justifying the killing or harming of Jews in the name of radical ideology or an extremist view of religion. Well, that is one that I agree with. That should be in this definition as an example of anti-Semitism, because that is grotesque and ludicrous. Making mendacious, dehumanising, demonising or stereotypical allegations about Jews. Again, I agree with that. That should be in the definition. As such, or the power of Jews is collective, such as especially but not exclusively the myth about a world Jewish conspiracy or of Jews controlling the media, economy, government or other societal institutions. Revisionist Zionists control the media, economy, government and other societal institutions, not least the global banking system.
not least the Rothschilds, accusing Jews as the people of being responsible for real or imagined wrongdoing committed by a single Jewish personal group or even for acts committed by non-Jews. Well, so are we saying then that a single Jewish person or a group of Jewish people have never, have never been responsible for wrongdoing? Of course they have. Denying the facts, scale mechanisms, e.g. gas chambers, or intentionality of the genocide of the Jewish people at the hands of National Socialist Germany and its supporters and accomplices during World War II and the Holocaust. Now, I'm not saying the Holocaust didn't happen. Were Jews treated appallingly in the Second World War? Yes. But the point is this. Is there any other historical event that questioning, in terms of the official version, is met with such a backlash? and in some countries it's a jailable offence. Is there any other historical event that that applies to? So why should it apply to the Holocaust? The idea that you can be jailed or you can receive a backlash or be labelled racist for questioning a historical event in terms of the official version of how it happened or even whether it happened is ridiculous. Accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than to the interests of their own nations. So, are we saying there are not Jewish citizens who are not more loyal to Israel or to the alleged priorities of Jews worldwide than to the interests of their own nations? Are we saying that never happens? Nobody in the whole world? Ever? Denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination easily by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavour. An apartheid regime which seeks to take over land, destroy land, bomb countries and expand out to a greater Israel while committing genocide against an entire nation of people. That's not a racist endeavour. Not according to this, it's not. Applying double standards by requiring of it a behaviour not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Well, how about expecting or demanding behaviour that is expected of any other democratic nation. That might be a start. Using the symbols and images associated with the classic anti-Semitism, e.g. claims of Jews killing Jesus or blood libel to characterise Israel or Israelis. Well, using symbols and images that are libelous and untrue to characterise or demonise any race of people or any cultural or ethnic group is ludicrous. Drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy to that of the Nazis, well, in terms of the Israeli regime and the actions of the Israeli army, there is a comparison to that of the Nazis. And finally, holding Jews collectively responsible for actions of the State of Israel. Revisionist Zionists are responsible for the actions of the State of Israel. And by Jews, whenever it says Jews in this definition, what it really means is revisionist Zionists. This is what the idea is, to persuade people that revisionist Zionism means Jewish people so they can use them as a cover so that anybody who says the kind of things I'm saying now and have said before on pay-per-view could be labelled racist for saying it. Well, label all you like. I'm not interested in whether I'm perceived to be racist or not. I'm interested in the truth and communicating the truth. It's not about Jews, it's about revisionist Zionists. It's Zionism, it's not Jewish people that's the problem. Which is a political philosophy, not a race. And the fact that you can be targeted and labelled racist in the way that people are for questioning 
and making legitimate comment about a political philosophy shows you just how ludicrous the whole situation is. But there's method in the ludicrousness because the idea is to stamp out any criticism of Israel, not only to protect Israel, but also to stem the flow of information to the people, which points out that a tiny few people, revisionist Zionists, run global society, control major corporations, dictate foreign policy of the West and have immense censorship power. And that's why we need to forget about concern of being labelled racist because it's not actually racism anyway, it's just pointing out facts and communicate what revisionist Zionism is responsible for. Yes, for the Palestinian people and others that revisionist Zionism is responsible for treating in the grotesque way that it does, but also because they know that once people see that, a whole different perspective of the world will fall into place. The next story today, which is about fracking. This is in The Guardian. Buried UK government report finds fracking increases air pollution. A UK government report concluding that shale gas extraction increases air pollution was left unpublished for three years and only released four days after ministers approved fracking in Lancashire has emerged. The report, written by the government's air quality expert group, was given to ministers in 2015 but was published quietly on the 27th of July. Fracking firm Quadrilla was given the first permit under a new regulatory regime on 24th of July, the final day of the parliamentary year. The Labour Shadow Environment Secretary Sue Heyman said the decision to grant a licence to Quadrilla must urgently be reconsidered. An earlier government report concluding that fracking could cause nearby house prices to fall by up to 7% was also delayed until after an important planning decision. There's a pattern emerging with environmentally unfriendly government announcements being scheduled to preempt worrying reports by experts, Heyman said. The decision on Heathrow's third runway was also taken days before the Committee on Climate Change reported on the danger of CO2 emissions. A Labour government would ban fracking. The report estimated that fracking industry of 400 wells would increase national emissions of pollution with nitrogen dioxide rising 1-4% and volatile organic compounds 1-3%, but it warned impacts on local and regional air quality have the potential to be substantially higher than the national level impacts as extraction activities are likely to be highly clustered. The thing that surprised me was you think the main sources of air pollution are going to be coming from the actual process of fracking, but it is as much all the industry, diesel generators, lorries running up and down roads and all the stuff used to support it, said Professor Professor Paul Monks at the University of Leicester and chair of the AQEG. The report's conclusion remains valid three years on. He said that hasn't changed. If you have any industrial process at a local level, you are going to get an impact on air quality. Some estimates of the size of the UK's future fracking industry in the report reached 12,500 wells. If you increase the amount of wells, you are bound to broadly increase pollution, Monks said. The publication of the report on the library page of the government's air quality website and not mentioned on the site's homepage was first reported by a specialist titled The Ends Report. A spokesman for the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs said the government places scientific data and research at the heart of its decision. The AQEG report reviewed data obtained from the US which might not be applicable to UK circumstances and needed thorough consideration. The report was published as soon as our four sign-off procedures have been completed. The article goes on. The report found that differences between the UK and US could both increase and decrease air pollution in UK shell fields are deeper, so more fuel needs to be burned to extract the gas and the UK already has illegally high levels of nitrogen oxides in many places, but the number and density of wells is likely to be lower than in the US. Since the report was written, independent monitoring of air pollution has begun in Yorkshire to establish a baseline of emissions before fracking begins. 
sitting on a report until after giving fracking the go-ahead. Hardly inspires trust in the government, said Corinne Schwartz of the Friends of the Earth. If research is carried out, it should be promptly released. The most recent government polling shows just 18% of the public support fracking. Air pollution is already a public health crisis that cuts 40,000 lives short every year, and this report is yet more evidence of why we shouldn't start fracking, said Schwartz. This Tory government has been dragged through the courts three times because of their failure to tackle illegal air pollution, but they're still taking a cavalier approach to this public health emergency, said Heyman. The earlier government report that found fracking could cause house prices to fall was heavily redacted when a Freedom of Information request forced its release in 2014. The full report was only published a year later after a ruling by the Information Commissioner. It emerged in 2016 that ministers had deliberately delayed the release of the full report until after the crucial decisions had been made by Lancashire County Council on planning applications to frack, representing dirty tricks of the highest order, according to an LCC councillor. And there's another article about fracking. This is from July 2015. This is in The Guardian. Fracking could hurt house prices, health and environment, official report says. Fracking operations to extract shell gas in Britain could cause nearby house prices to fall by up to 7% and create a risk of environmental damage, according to a government report that has been published in full for the first time. Entitled Shell Gas Rural Economy Impacts, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, document was released after Freedom of Information Back. An official assessment of the impact of fracking warned that leakage of waste fluids could affect human health through polluted water or the consumption of contaminated agricultural products. The report was first published last year in a heavily redacted form under Freedom of Information Rules, prompting the Green MP Caroline Lucas to accuse the government of censorship and trying to hide the negative impacts of fracking. Two weeks ago, the Information Commissioner's Office ruled that the Environment Department must release the report unredacted. The findings of the study come at a crucial time for the government and shale industry just two days after the surprise rejection by Lancashire County Council of what would have been the biggest round of fracking so far. Previously emitted sections reveal that house prices near fracking wells were likely to fall and there was a potential reduction of up to 7% in property values within a mile of wells. Properties within a 1-5 to five mile radius of fracking sites may incur additional insurance costs. Leakage of waste fluids from fracking processes has resulted in environmental damage in the US. Even if contaminated surface water did not directly impact on drinking water supplies, fracking could affect human health indirectly through consumption of contaminated wildlife, livestock or agricultural products. It concluded that the UK regulatory regime was likely to be more robust, but the impact on water resource availability, aquatic habitats and ecosystems and water quality was uncertain. The report also spelled out possible benefits of fracking, such as generating jobs and economic growth, as well as providing greater energy security for the UK. Rents may also increase due to additional demand from fracking site workers, it suggested. So this is the mentality. There's all the consequences of fracking, but it's a good thing as it could create more jobs. That's the way of thinking. The article goes on. It added that communities could benefit from investment in local services and infrastructure due to community payments that shell companies will have to pay to people nearby their operations. Liz Trust, the Environment Secretary, has distanced herself from the report, calling it misleading and emphasising its draft nature. Ministers were split over the publication of the report in full with Trust saying it should not be released and the Energy Minister Andrea Leadsom saying the paper was going to be published. Tony Bosworth, an energy campaigner at Friends of the Earth, said the timing of the report's release was significant. No wonder DEFRA sat on this explosive report until after the Lancashire decision, as he said. The article goes on. Lancashire councillors had debated whether to hold off making their planning decision until the report was published in full, but eventually decided to reject based by quadrilateral frack at two sites on the field plane. Field spot F-Y-L-D-E. 
Lucas demanded that Trust apologise for initially withholding the full report. The government has conducted itself appallingly in holding back this crucial evidence. The Environment Secretary should now offer a forward apology to communities facing the threat of fracking and guarantee that such deceitful behaviour won't happen again in the future, she said. The article goes on. The main industry body, UK Onshore Oil and Gas, dismissed the report as being in danger of extrapolating the experiences of other jurisdictions that have different regulation, planning regimes and geologists. Ken Cronin, Chief Executive of UK OOG, said, It is a shame that this report has become such a cause celebre as it is merely a review of literature and brings nothing new to the debate or any new information in a UK context. A DEFRA spokesman said this document was drawn up as a draft internal discussion paper. It is not analytically robust, has not been peer-reviewed and remains incomplete. It does not contain any new data or evidence and many of the conclusions amount to unsubstantiated conjecture which do not represent the views of officials or ministers. I've talked about fracking in episode 18. Fracking is all about fracturing the land to get people off the land and injecting poisonous and toxic chemicals into the groundwater so people can no longer use the water for drinking, cooking or cleaning and so they have to move. There's a video on YouTube of someone setting fire to water because of the toxins and shell gas within the water. So this is another story today which plays into the megacity agenda of the Hunger Games Society. Also this plays into the depopulation agenda because of the air pollution generated from fracking. The irony of all this is that free energy technology has existed for decades. I know this because of my own source. But people like Nikola Tesla were proving free energy technology was possible back in the early 20th century. He invented the Warden Cliff Tower, which was supposed to be a means of generating free energy. Of course, those in power didn't take kindly to that because they don't want us to have free energy technology, otherwise we'd already have it. And this is why he has been given nowhere near the level of prominence in history that he should have been, not just because of his experiments with free energy, but for other reasons as well, because his experimentation inventions would give people, if people were aware of it on a mass scale, a much different view of possibility. One thing is for sure though, if the agenda was for everybody to have free energy, then Tesla would be known about by everybody as much as Einstein is. and his experimentation would have been picked up by the top businesses at that time and publicised on a mass scale and we'd have access to the technology and machinery that he invented. If someone inventing something will advance the elite's agenda, then it gets publicised and people have access to it. If someone is inventing something like Tesla that is the opposite of what the agenda wants, then they're on their own and they'll be blocked and face obstacles at every turn and so this free energy technology that has existed for decades is suppressed not just for money the bigger picture for why anything happens is never money anyone who thinks all the manipulation and control in pursuit of the elite's global agenda is happening for money is massively missing the point it is about money on one level but ultimately it's about control and suppression when you get into the deeper areas of this beyond the remit of pay-per-view then it becomes very very clear why that's the case and despite all the consequences of fracking fracking continues because of its importance to the global agenda and the consequences for people in the land people live on is never considered because society is agenda driven not people driven the next story today was about austerity was about small businesses and the Royal Bank of Scotland 
this is in the Guardian, no financial conduct authority action against RBS after mistreatment of small businesses. The City of London watchdog is to take no disciplinary action against the Royal Bank of Scotland over the mistreatment of small business customers struggling after the banking crisis. The Financial Conduct Authority said it lacked the powers to discipline the Royal Bank of Scotland for misconduct despite the widespread inappropriate treatment of up to 12,000 small businesses by the bank's global restructuring group GRG between 2008 and 2013. An internal memo written in 2009 by GRG advised its staff that sometimes you have to let customers hang themselves when in financial difficulty, adding that missed opportunities will mean missed bonuses. RBS has said the memo did not reflect bank policy or guidance. Andrew Bailey, the FCA's chief executive, said, I appreciate that many GRG customers will be frustrated by this decision, but we have explored all the options available to us before arriving at this conclusion. The fact that we can't take action in no way condones the behaviour of RBS. We expect high standards from the firms we regulate and RBS fell well short in treatment. The fact that we can't take action in no way condones the behaviour of RBS. We expect high standards from the firms we regulate and RBS fell well short in its treatment of GRG customers. Nicky Morgan, the Conservative MP who chairs the Treasury Select Committee, said it will be disappointing and bewildering for those who got caught up in GRG's actions that the FCA is not able to act. This demonstrates the need for a change in how lending for small and medium-sized business enterprises is regulated. The government should stand ready to introduce any legislation required when it sees the outcome of current reports on redress and should also urgently consider what additional powers the FCA requires to act in cases such as GRG. In February, Morgan's committee published the City Watchdog's full unredacted report into what the committee called RBS's disgraceful treatment of small firms that came to the bank for financial assistance after the banking crisis. The group of MPs released the complete report after a protracted standoff with the FCA, which had published only a redacted version. Commissioned by the FCA in 2014, the report said GRG's activities had resulted in material financial distress for small business customers. Some said they were pushed into bankruptcy. One of them is Nigel Henderson, who ran a hotel business with his wife, Norma, with annual profits of around £500,000 in the late 1990s. He claims GRG, then called Specialised Lending Services, drove the business into bankruptcy and seized all the couple's personal assets. They now live in a rented house and rely on their state pensions and housing benefit. Pointing to Iceland and the Republic of Ireland, where some bank bosses have been jailed for their role during the financial crisis, Henderson said, I just don't believe there was any will by the UK authorities to bring the bankers to book. The government have got to get a grip. The Hendersons cannot claim compensation under the complaints process overseen by Sir William Blackburn, a retired High Court judge, because it only applies to cases from 2008. Bailey said companies that had experienced losses as a result of how they were treated while in GRG must be appropriately compensated and that the FCA was closely monitoring the complaints process. The RBS GRG Business Action Group, which represents hundreds of affected small businesses and is pursuing a legal claim on their behalf, said, We are disappointed but not surprised by today's announcement. The FCA has always been a supine, toothless regulator, more concerned with protecting RBS than ordinary people. It will not stop us in the pursuit of justice through our high court claim. Bailey said, while commercial lending to SMEs was not regulated by the FCA, the watchdog now had the power to hold senior management of banks to account for the way they treat their small business customers, which powers to find them under rules that came into force in 2016. But the FCA said it could not apply the new powers retrospectively. It also said it found no evidence of dishonesty or lack of integrity and argued that it could not bring a successful case for lack of competence against senior management. Bailey said, 
It is important to recognise that the business of GRG was largely unregulated and the FCA's powers to take action in such circumstances even where the mistreatment of customers has been identified and accepted are very limited. Taking action was therefore always going to be difficult and challenging but after carefully considering all the evidence we have concluded that our powers to discipline for misconduct do not apply and that an action in relation to senior management for lack of fitness and propriety would not have reasonable prospects of success. Howard Davis, the chairman of RBS, said the board welcomes the FCA's confirmation that it has concluded its investigation into the bank and that no further action will be taken. We await the publication of the FCA's full account and will reflect carefully on its findings to learn any further lessons from what was a hugely challenging time for the bank, its customers and the wider economy. The board continues to focus on putting things right for customers through our complaints process and ensuring that past mistakes cannot be repeated. The way the bank deals with business customers and financial difficulty is fundamentally different now. But, well, as I've said before many times, the idea is to get rid of business, full stop, of any size. The agenda is for giant corporations to run everything. This is why we're hearing talk about privatisation, in other words, corporatization, of the NHS, law enforcement, rail travel. In fact, they've already taken massive steps towards rail travel corporatisation. These are Orwell's ministries from 1984. This is why we're seeing increasing red tape and regulations being foisted upon business, especially small businesses. One of which is climate change regulation, energy saving commitments to save the planet from something not caused by humans, but by something off planet that we call the sun. I talk about this in episode 18. This story fundamentally connects into the previous story today because the agenda is for everyone to be in poverty with their only chance of survival being a job they're assigned to do by the state. The agenda is to break up countries into mega regions, mega cities, and whichever one you live in will dictate what job you do for the meager amount you'll get paid to do it. Just enough to survive, really. And you'll only be able to spend that purely electronic currency if authority has no problem with you. Amazon is playing its part in this because it has a virtual monopoly now. I mean, what doesn't Amazon sell? This is designed to make it increasingly harder for smaller competitors to survive en route to this global corporatized society. In 2017, according to market research firm Slice Intelligence, Amazon accounted for 53% of online sales growth in America in 2016. And it was also reported by Slice Intelligence that Amazon took 43% of total revenue generated online in America in 2016. And it was reported in July this year in an article on techcrunch.com that according to market research firm eMarketer, Amazon is set to clear $258.22 billion in US retail sales in 2018, according to eMarketer's figures, which will work out to 49.1% of all online retail spend in the country. It's all part of creating a monopoly on what people purchase, a global monopoly, not ultimately for money, but for control in the Hunger Games society, which I talk about in more detail in episode four. This is an article in The Guardian from September 2016. Study. Big corporations dominate a list of world's top economic entities. The world's biggest corporations have increased their wealth compared with nation states in the last year, illustrating the growing power of multinational businesses. A study by the anti-poverty charity Global Justice Now found that the number of businesses in the top 100 economic entities jumped to 69 in 2015, from 63 in the previous year. While many emerging market economies have struggled to grow in the last couple of years, mainly as a result of China's slowdown, many of the world's largest corporations have increased in size. The London-based campaign group said the 10 biggest corporations, including Walmart, Apple and Shell, make more money than most countries in the world combined. They don't even mention Amazon. I mean, what must, what must, what must it be for Amazon? 
The charity blamed governments for bowing to pressure from multinational firms to promote business-friendly tax regimes above the needs of their citizens. Well, is that any surprise, really? An assessment of the top 200 entities found that many smaller countries were squeezed out, leaving 153 corporations above many nations from Africa, Asia and South America. The US, China, Germany, Japan, France and UK make up the top six economic entities, followed by Italy, Brazil and Canada. Walmart ranks as the 10th largest, followed by China's electricity monopoly state grid at number 14, China National Petroleum at 15 and Chinese oil firm Sinopec Group at 16. Apple ranked 26 behind the 18th place Royal Dutch Shell with ExxonMobil at 21, Volkswagen at 22 and Toyota at 20. The value of the top 10 corporations was $285 trillion, $215 trillion, pounds, beating the $280 trillion worth of the bottom 180 countries, which include Ireland, Indonesia, Israel, Colombia, Greece, South Africa, Iraq and Vietnam. Nick Dearden, the charity's director, said the vast wealth and power of corporations is at the heart of so many of the world's problems like inequality and climate change. Well, as I say, I'll talk about that in episode 18 and talk about why that's a massive scam to justify the transformation of human society in the most extraordinary way. Anyway, Nick Dearden says, The drive for short-term profits today seems to trump basic human rights for millions of people on the planet. These figures show the problem is getting worse. It is getting worse, but it's always planned to get worse. That's the point. Global Justice Now said it released the figures to increase pressure on the British government head of a UN working group led by Ecuador that aims to draw up a binding treaty to ensure transnational corporations abide by the full range of human rights responsibilities. Campaigners said they are calling for the treaty to be legally enforceable at a national and global level. The charity has criticised Britain for refusing to support the process. Dearden said the UK government has facilitated this rise in corporate power through tax structures, trade deals and even aid programmes to help big business. Their wholehearted support for the US-EU trade deal TTIP is just the latest example of government help to big business. Disgracefully, it also routinely opposes the call of developing countries to hold corporations to account for their human rights impacts in the UN. Well, TTIP is a trade and investment partnership out of America and the European Union that is designed to, among other things, allow corporations to take governments to court if those governments or that government have laws that the corporation feels could affect profits. So corporations dominating the list of world's top economic entities, that's the plan, that's where it's designed to go. So in the end, we're looking at an ongoing multi-generational agenda driving the direction of the world and society because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And this is why I do pay-per-view. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.